Okay, the only announcement I have, again, relates to the trips, but everybody needs to know we have a new uh, brochure up on the website for the Israel trip that's been updated, and as well, a new brochure and information on the Museum of the Bible trip. So if you're planning to go to the Museum of the Bible trip, there's important information there related to cost of the trip because Museum of the Bible has a, a charge for per person per um, on groups, and we really negotiated a, a, a tremendous uh, a tremendous deal. So you'd have to uh, read through it, look at all that information, and we need response from people. So if you're planning to go to that, you need to uh, pay attention. So those are the only only two things. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, as usual, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. I hope that today has been a good day for you to enjoy your fellowship with God, that you have been reading your Bible, and that's another thing that is new on the website, is we have the 2018 uh, Bible reading plan up there. This was one that's put together by one of the professors at Chafer Seminary, Ray Mondragon, and so you can look at that. You don't have to do that one. You can do any number of plans. You can do a search on the Internet and find a plethora of Bible reading plans for going through in a year. So it doesn't matter which plan you use as long as you have a plan and you're reading through your Bible. So uh, that's the some of the new information that is up on the DBM website. We'll have a, a few moments of silent prayer so everyone can make sure they're in right relationship with the Lord before we begin our study of the Word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful we have your grace. We're thankful that you have given us so much. And we are so often not appreciative. We take your grace for granted. And we pray that we might come to understand and appreciate more and more and just develop that capacity uh, to love you and to love all that you have provided for us through your word and through Jesus Christ. And that we have all of our riches are in Christ Jesus and just learning to exploit that which you have freely given to us a unique spiritual life, unique to this church age, and unique to all of human history. Now, Father, as we continue in our study of Peter, we're reminded that we will all face opposition, we will all face uh, persecution to one degree or another, we will face ridicule, hostility, undeserved suffering, and Peter is teaching us the mental attitude that we need 
in order to face uh, these uh, speed bumps that come along in our lives that are simply tools that you use to train us to focus on you and walk in dependence upon you. And we pray that we might be strengthened and encouraged in our study tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me tonight to um, 1 Peter chapter 4. Seems like we spent a lot of time in chapter 3 because we took about a five-month detour in the middle of that to do a study on apologetics and Christian evidences. Uh, Tonight, we're continuing on our verse-by-verse study as we have in the previous uh, section. The focal point of these first four verses are on the mental resolve, that mental focus, that determination that we must all reach at some point if we are going to advance in the in the spiritual life and if we're going to uh, mature. And so that's what I've taken for a title is the mental resolve we need for spiritual victory. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, we start off with the word therefore, which tells us this is a conclusion to something. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, some of you may say, well, I don't feel like I've ceased from sin. Well, maybe you don't understand what this translation is really talking about, and that's what's important. There are a number of issues in terms of translation and interpretation in this passage, and as usual, it's important to go back and contextualize the passage that we're looking at. First uh, Peter 4, 1 picks up the thought that therefore picks up the thought from first, uh, first Peter 3, 18. First Peter 3, 18 starts with a 4. And this is an explanation. Actually, it's because, and it is developing the idea that comes out of verse 17. So we have to keep that in mind as we're reading and working our way through this next section that the main idea that Peter is getting across is that it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And a lot of Christians don't want to suffer for any reason. They don't want to suffer for doing good, for doing bad. They want to uh, just have a wonderful Christian life. And unfortunately, back in the 70s and along the lines of... um, Uh, tracks put out with the gospel, there have been a number of approaches that so emphasize the joy, the happiness, the meaning that we get in life from our salvation and from our relationship with God, that the idea has come across to some Christians in some areas that, well, the Christian life is just going to be a joy-filled, happy life. It's going to be a wonderful life. And there won't be any problems or difficulties, and all my problems are solved. Well, in one sense, yes, they are solved, but that doesn't mean that the speed bumps aren't there. We still have to grow and mature, and we're still going to face a lot of testing. We're going to face uh, challenges in our spiritual life, but that's what gives us the opportunity uh, to trust the Lord. So there are times, though, when we face circumstances in life 
when we feel like God is just somewhere else, that he has somehow left the building and nobody is in the wheelhouse and the wheel is just spinning around and we're rudderless and going in all kinds of wrong directions as the storm clouds uh, gather and toss us about. But that's not true. We think that that is what's happening, but God is nevertheless fully in control. He is allowing sin in the cosmos to work itself out, negative volition to work itself out. And because of sin and because of people's rejection of truth and rejection of God, bad things are going to happen. People are going to use their free will not for good but for evil. And there's also the ongoing problems of weather crises, which we've experienced here in Houston. Many people who've lived wonderful lives and have been obedient and focused on the word lost maybe everything, lost their homes, lost, and they're still not back in their homes. And it's one of the many tests that we face in life is to trust the Lord through those, through those difficult times. And when that happens, we think, why did God hap- let this happen to me? It's that first question that pops out of our self-absorbed sin nature. Why is this? It's about me. Why did this happen to me? Who cares about those other 99,999 uh, families in Houston that are not back in their homes yet? It's about me. And that's how we are. That's just the orientation of the sin nature. And so we think this wasn't very fair of God to let this happen to me, whatever it might be. It might be a disease. It might be losing your job. It might be any number of things that <clears throat> hit us and were unexpected and have, as it were, seemingly derailed us from the wonderful plans we had for our lives. And so we ask these questions what did I do to deserve this? What is, is God somehow missing out? And so a lot of suffering we automatically look at in terms of being undeserved uh, suffering. Of course, Peter's challenge to his readers is that they are to persevere in doing right. That is, in making the right decisions, responding to evil, responding to suffering, responding to calamity, Uh, the right way, no matter what the consequences might be. In some situations, you can imagine in a culture that is truly hostile to Christianity, you can think about situations in our world today and any number of the uh, Islamic countries, uh, countries that were, for example, in Syria, uh, the Christians that were there suffered horribly with the expansion of ISIS during the last eight years. But According to recent reports, ISIS has just about lost all of their ground and all of their territory. That's one of those underreported stories right now. If you pay attention to the mainstream media, you think that everybody in the world is just consumed with the idea that somehow Donald Trump colluded with the Russians to get elected to the White House. Of course, even a card-carrying liberal and Democrat like Harvard professor Alan Dershowitz says collusion is not a crime. Okay? We need to understand that. And yet we have 
an entire political party that that's the only thing they can think of and the only thing that appears in the news. But one of the things that has happened in this first year of this president's um, time in office is a complete shift in how the White House related to the military. Under the previous president, the previous administration, it was everything was micromanaged and the rules of engagement that those are the the laws that relate to what a soldier can do in the field as he interacts with the enemy that they were so uh they were so rigid and almost unrealistic that ISIS just grew and grew and expanded and expanded and yet in the first year of Donald Trump's presidency ISIS has lost about 98% of its territory in Syria and in northern Iraq. And that's one of the most underreported stories out there. This is this is absolutely huge. They're going to have to shift their base probably to North Africa, and that's where uh, the future of that fight's going to be. But the Christians who were in those areas were horribly tortured and, and persecuted, and they were uh, physically tortured. They were uh, murdered horribly. Uh, the women were raped. It just You just cannot imagine how bad it was. We in America seem distanced. They're, they're not the kind of Christians that, that we know. So we, they, we tend to ignore them. The news doesn't report much, and they're just on our blind side. But we have uh, tens of thousands of fellow believers in Christ in those areas who were, uh, who've been horribly persecuted. And yet what Peter says is that this is undeserved suffering, and the re- response of the believer in that situation is to do what, what's right no matter what it costs. And the ultimate example for this is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, which is what 1 Peter 3.18 is all about. And 1 Peter 3.18 emphasizes that it was Jesus who the perfect, who the just, who died for the unjust, died for a reason. He suffered unjustly. He was arrested wrongly. He was ridiculed and abused, as we've been studying in our Matthew series on on Sunday morning. He was uh, arrested. He was physically beaten and abused and flogged by the Romans. And then he's taken out and he is crucified. This is the Son of God, the Son of Man, who is perfect without sin, never did anything worthy of any of this punishment, and yet he is the prime example. None of us will suffer in this way, as the writer of Hebrews says, suffering to the point of death. None of us have suffered to the point of death in our spiritual life. And so that is the example in the Scripture of how we are to face adversity. The other example that we go to is from the Old Testament, and that is in the book of Job. And I am of the studied opinion that Job was more than likely the first book written in the the Old Testament, and it it preceded the books of Moses. And that would make sense in my mind to the fact that suffering is such a universal problem, undeserved and unjust suffering is such a universal problem, that the first book that is inscripturated is a book that is teaching on how to face and handle undeserved suffering and unjust ad- adversity. 
God's answer to Job was pretty simple, that man can't understand why there's unjust suffering, and so don't try, just trust God. His answer is that it's extremely arrogant to start questioning God when someone goes through undeserved suffering. Uh, We see situations where, for example, yesterday there was uh, an accident that occurred when a treehouse fell on a on a, on a young boy, and he died overnight. And people say, how can a good God let something like this happen? Because this good God is giving people the freedom to make good or bad decisions. And because bad decisions were made in the past with Adam, bringing sin and corruption into the world, then bad things will continue to happen, not just directly because of somebody's bad decisions, but because we live in a fallen world. And the only way that's going to stop is for the Lord Jesus Christ to refer, to return and to end it all. And God is extending his grace to allow the human race to continue to grow and develop and to uh, expand to get, so that more and more will hear the grace of God and respond to the gospel. God's answer to Job is that, yes, he's in control. He hasn't left the wheelhouse. He's not distracted by some war that's going on in some other part of the world. He's not off some other part of the universe taking um, taking a look at what's happening there. He is engaged because he's omnipresent at every moment at every place in the universe, God is fully present. In his knowledge, he knows everything that has ever taken place and will ever take in place. He knows what will happen in our lives before we do. And because he knows all the facts, and we, if we know anything, it's just such an infinitesimal part of the total uh, total amount of facts and information, and we want to judge God on the basis of one minor nanofact, and God knows all the facts, all the details, and his purpose is good. And so if we look back at verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. There's a reason for that. This is a good And when you get into philosophy, you argue whether there is a good so great that it justifies the existence of evil. And that good is that God might, that Jesus might bring us to God. That's at the cross. That we may not understand the overriding purpose, the good, but we trust in it because of who God is. And so we trust in Him. We have promises. One of the greatest promises we have related to this is in Romans eight twenty-eight to 30, where we read that we know all things work together for good. God is the one working those things together for good in his providential guidance of the universe, and it is for those who love God. Now, that really is a term contextually for all believers, not just mature believers who have grown to a mature love, because all believers love God to the degree that they're, they have maturity. Even a baby loves his parents the way a baby loves his parents. 
Uh, a five-year-old loves his parents the way a five-year-old has the capacity to love his parents. And a 20-year-old has a different capacity, and a 50-year-old has a different capacity. So as you grow and mature, that capacity to love God changes and grows. So this is just a term for those who love God, because in the subsequent phrases, those who love God are defined as, A, those who are called according to his purpose, and that is those who were foreknown, those who were predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Uh, in verse 30, uh, those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. That includes every believer. So it's not just talking about a special class of believer. So we can be confident that no matter how chaotic and crazy and messed up and, and hurtful some of the things are that we go through, God's in control, and he's going to work it all together for good. And when we're face-to-face with him, we will come to understand just how he was working in our lives. And so when we come to this section, we have to think about what prepared Jesus to be able to face this undeserved suffering. Because remember, he's not facing it in the power of his divine omnipotence. He's facing it in his finite humanity. And so what are the resources that he calls upon in order to uh, face that adversity? He is able to do so because of the power of God's word, first and foremost. He understands the thinking and the mind of God And he has studied the Bible since he was able to first understand it and read it in his humanity. Second, he's dependent on God the Holy Spirit in his ministry in the same way that we can be dependent on God the Holy Spirit in our life and in our ministry. And as a result of his dependence on the Holy Spirit, on the Word of God and on the Holy Spirit, he has grown in his humanity to spiritual uh, maturity, and he has developed a, on, on, in his humanity, an intimacy with God that goes beyond anything that any other human being could do because of our our fallen nature. So he is able to face this because of those same resources that God has provided for us. What limits us is because of our carnality. We get that. We get everything really really messed up. So in order to uh, follow him and to imitate him in this area, we have to develop in those same areas in our dependence upon God's word, our dependence on the Holy Spirit, our spiritual maturity, and that intimacy, that fellowship, that rapport with God that is what we call fellowship. It is an active state in that relationship. So this is all background and part of what comes up in chapter 4, verse 1. Starts off with the word therefore, which is a conclusion in the Greek. This first word is drawing a conclusion. As I often point out in Bible study methods, we, when we hear a therefore, we have to see what it's there for. It's drawing a conclusion from everything that goes before. And then it says, Since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, 
arm yourselves. That's the command that we have here. That's what we want to focus on in terms of application. Arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, when we look at this verse and you read it, if you stop to think about it, one of the questions that should come to your mind is, what does it mean that he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin? Does that mean we won't, if we reach this point, whatever it is, that we won't ever sin again? Is that what Peter's saying? It doesn't sound, I mean, it sounds like that's what he's saying in the English, but that isn't what he's saying when we look at the structure of the Greek grammar. So we have to stop and understand what that means. Part of that answer is involves determining if the he who has suffered in the flesh, if that's talking about Jesus. Because when we go back to 1 Peter 3.18, it says that Jesus was put to death in the flesh. So that's one form of suffering. Suffering's a broad category. So is that what he's talking about when we get to four one that he who has suffered in the flesh is that Jesus or is that us? That's what we need to, to address. Of course, you see that it's a lowercase he in the translation, but that just reflects uh, the translators. So there's a question there. There's debate over that. And as we get in further into the paragraph, and we look down to uh, we look down to verse uh, two talks about doing the will of God. What exactly does does that mean? Uh, what does it mean to be, uh, do, uh, excuse me, what does it mean to be doing the will of the Gentiles in verse 3? What What is the significance of that word Gentiles? Many people think the word Gentiles is just a synonym for unbelievers, but is that true? We'll look at that. That's an important question to answer. And then as we come to the end of these uh, four verses, or six verses, we learn that there is a judgment mentioned in verse 5 that we are to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. I always like the old King James translation. And a lot of people have apparently over the time, over time, because the King James said the quick and the dead. And that became a title for a Western. It became a title for a Western novel. It, be, it entered into mainstream language because in the Western mythology, the quick would be those who were quick on the draw. And if you weren't quick, you were dead. So they would play with that phrase a little bit. It actually just means those who are alive and those who are dead. So, as we look at this, we need to take it apart a little bit, look at the grammar, find some interesting things. As I said, it starts with this conclusion, and then we have the main verb, which is translated since suffered, or because he suffered. And this is a uh, participle, and because the participle doesn't have an article with it in the Greek, that means it's translated like a verb. It's an adverbial uh, construction, and adverbial participles can have different nuances, and the nuance here is a causal nuance because that's translated because or since. 
For those who are, and we have several who are studying Greek, this participles is in the genitive and Christ is also in the genitive. And when that occurs, it's a somewhat rare construction known as a genitive absolute where the genitive phrase actually stands as the subject for the for the for the sentence so it is accurately translated uh, as the subject since Christ suffered for us in the flesh and so when we look at the phrase in the flesh what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word flesh you probably think of the sin nature because that's how Paul uses the term flesh. But the term flesh can refer to the physical body. It can refer to meat that one eats. It has several other nuances. Paul uses it to refer to the sin nature in many cases. We walk according to the flesh, that is the sin nature, or we walk according to the Holy Spirit. There's that contrast between the sin nature versus the Holy Spirit. But what we have here is a different author. And one of the most important principles in doing word studies and understanding the text is to realize that every author doesn't use words the same way. Now, there are some words that may be used the same way by each author, but there are certain words that are not. For example, Paul uses the phrase in Christ or in him to refer to our position in Christ. That is true for every believer at every time. But when Jesus is talking in John 15, for example, as and he talks about every believer in me, that isn't he doesn't mean the same thing that Paul means when he means when he talks about being in Christ. John uses the phrase in me or when he's speaking in him to refer to fellowship. If you try to impose Paul's meanings on John or John meanings on Paul, then you end up with some some problems. The same thing would be true with, with Peter. Peter doesn't use the phrase in the flesh the same way Paul does. He uses it six times actually in um, in First Peter. He the first time he uses it is back in First Peter chapter one, and he's using it in the quote in one twenty four, the quote that comes from Isaiah forty verse six, all flesh is as grass. Now let me ask you a question. Obviously, it's used there with a meaning that is not the sin nature. He's not saying all sin nature is as grass. That wouldn't make sense. So obviously, he's using flesh there in the terms of living bodies, that all living bodies are corrupt and eventually die. They're not permanent. They'll uh, fade away with time. The next time he uses the word in the flesh is in the verse we've looked at already, verse 18 of chapter 3, that Jesus was put to death in the flesh. Again, it's obvious that's not the sin nature that's talking about in his human body, in his humanity. Also in 3.21, in 3.21 there's a baptism that's not the removal of the filth of the flesh. In other words, it's not washing the dirt off your body. So again, Peter's use of flesh talks about your physical human 
human body. And then when we get to chapter 4, verse 1 and chapter 4, verse 2, then we would interpret flesh in the same way. So he says, Christ suffered for us in the flesh, just as he was put to death in the flesh. This is talking about his physical condition that he uh, what, that he suffered in his humanity, in his uh, physical body. And so that would be the same thing that we would understand in verse 2. It says that he no, no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh, that is, uh, in his human body. So understanding flesh there, don't read Paul's meaning into it. He's just talking about in the human body. And then he says that arm yourselves. Christ suffered for us in the flesh, the just for the unjust, back in verse 18. Now the command is arm yourselves also with the same mind. That phrase, arm yourself, is from the Greek word hoplizo. Hoplizo. Listen to what I say. Hoplizo is the verb. There's another word used that comes from a Greek word hoplite. Hoplizo, hoplite. A hoplite is the term for basically the buck private infantry soldier in the Greek army. He was called a hoplite. So right away we know this is a military term, and instead of using the noun describing a soldier, it's using the, the verb that it describes what the soldier does. He fights. So this is a word that has the idea of preparing yourself for combat, to arm yourself, to get ready or to be equipped. It would be the basic idea, the basic meaning, but it's part of a whole complex of words that relate to um, the military, relate to combat, relate to warfare. So as we look at that, uh, that's what this passage is talking about. And here's a series of words that we have in the New Testament. This first paragraph up here, uh, you, all these words are cognates of the noun polemos, which is a word for war or battle, uh, fighting, strife, conflict, quarrel. It's where we get our English word polemic, which describes a debate or an argument. Uh, so you have polemos and polemeo. Then you have another larger group of cognate words from which we get our English word strategy. And so I underline this in the English translation, S-T-R-A-T is the root, uh, and you have an in various endings that are added to that root, but this refers can refer to an expedition or a mi uh, military campaign. It can refer to an army or a detachment of troops. Another form of the word acts as serving or acting as a soldier, uh, acting as a general or a chief magistrate. Uh, it, gathering together an army, or being a military commander. All of these are just cognate. So all these different words, in fact, when I look this up in the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology, that's a dictionary that came out back in 75. Uh, it was just coming out when I started seminary. And when that came out, uh, you looked up the English word instead of a Greek word. 
And so you would look up a word like army or military or one of those, and then it would list all the various synonyms in the Greek that related to the military. And so that's where I copied this list from. And the word hapizo fits within that whole block of synonyms that all relate to uh, fighting, to being involved in a war, and what we conclude from a study of this word, hoplizo, and its usage, it's the idea of preparing for combat. And to prepare for combat, the, one of the most important things you have to do is to prepare your mind to be ready to engage the enemy and, if necessary, kill the enemy. That is a mental attitude. It is fortifying yourself to do that which you would not do under normal uh, conditions. And so that's what the idea is here. It's not just simply preparing. You can prepare to do a lot of things. You can go home tonight, and before you go to sleep, you're going to prepare your coffee pot so that you can just plug it in in the morning when you're bleary-eyed and it'll automatically make your coffee. You'll set out other things that you'll have for breakfast. And so you'll be prepared when you get up to do those things and get ready to go to work or whatever you're going to do during the day. But this is a special kind of preparation. It's a preparation for combat. And so it is a word that brings us into a doctrine of Scripture that is very important. That is the doctrine of spiritual warfare. Not this, not this kind of idea that you get popularized since the late 60s and 70s in the charismatic Pentecostal camp where spiritual warfare has been, uh, it's, it's got a lot of mystical theology with it and you going out and fighting with the devil. I, I just cringe now when I'm in certain circles of Christians and they use this term spiritual warfare in ways that show they don't have a clue what the Bible says. Spir 90% of spiritual warfare takes place between your ears and between my ears it has to do with our mental focus on Scripture, application of Scripture, faith rest drill. It's not going out and giving the devil a black eye or binding Satan or casting Satan out of somebody. It's not uh, taking dominion over something in the name of Jesus, which is how it's often presented. Spiritual warfare is keeping focused on the Lord doing what God says to do in difficult circumstances, trusting him, applying his word, keeping your mind focused on God. That is what is going on here. And so when we have this passage, we are to arm ourselves with the same mind. It is mental. It is probably 99% mental what's going on between your ears. Very little has to do with something external. It has to do with what's going on between your ears. <clears throat> we could look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and following, where it talks about putting on the full armor of God, and that's all just spiritual growth. It's all learning, learning what God has provided for you in the Scriptures and then living and fighting in light of that. And the fighting is just a metaphor for dealing with the struggle in a fallen world. And this idea here emphasizes 
that you, we are to have the same mind. The same indicates a comparison with somebody. The same mind is who? The same mind as Jesus. We are to think like Jesus did. We are to prepare our thinking as Jesus did to go to the cross so that we're not thinking about the non-essentials. We're not thinking about what we're missing out on. We're not focusing on, oh, it's terrible. Those people don't like me. They're uh, mean to me. They're persecuting me. They're kicking me out of the company. They're doing this or doing that. It's all about focusing on the Lord and what he has for us. And so, but this is a, a, an interesting word. If you've read your Bible through a few times, you will know that there are many times in the English where you have this phrase, the same mind. But here we have this word, anoia. And it means thought or knowledge or insight according to the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology. And according to uh, Bauer Danker, Arndt Gingrich, Greek lexicon, it's the content of mental processing. It's thought or knowledge or insight. Actually, we can refine it a little more than that, which I'll do in just a minute. But when we think of how this word is translated, this idea of having the same thinking, and the emphasis on the Christian life in terms of the same uh, thinking, we, um, we think of passages like Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, 1 through 4, the focus is on how believers are to ha- have unity, and they're to have the same, uh, they're to be like-minded, they're to have the same love for one another, they're to have one, be in one accord, and they're to be of one mind. And the verb there is the word phreneo, and that's the most common word that is translated uh, mind. And it has to do with thinking, having the same mentality, the same attitude, the same way of thinking. And then in uh, three verses later, Paul says about Jesus, let this mind, that is this mindset, this thinking, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So that's talking once again about that mental focus. And in the context, it comes around to being humble, being submissive to the authority of God. In Romans twelve sixteen, Paul says, be of the same mind toward one another. And that is related to the use in Philippians 2, 2, and 5. It's the same word for neo, and it emphasizes also a humble mindset. For Paul goes on to say, do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. So for neo there has to do with humility, which has to do with submission to the authority of God. In Philippians uh, 2, 6, and 7, it talks about Jesus uh, submitted him, humbled himself by being obedient to God. That's what humility is, submission to the authority over you. In 1 Corinthians uh, one ten, there's a different word for mind, the word for noose. Now, this word, if you look at it, it's en, that is a preposition in the Greek, 
And then the root is N-O-I-A. That is a form of the noun noose, which is the word for mind. So 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind. In other words, think the same thing, and it's the word there for noose, very close in meaning to phreneo. And then Philippians 3. Philippians uses this, this word group a lot. In Philippians 3.16, uh, Paul says, Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, that is, attained maturity, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. Again, that's phreneo. And then there was a personal conflict between two women in the congregation, Euvodia and Syntyche, and Paul said to them, I implore Euvodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind, the same thinking. All of this has to do with humility and submission to the authority of God. So, that's all related to those words. But this word has a slightly different nuance. In fact, when it's used in the Old Testament, though it often translates the word for discernment or understanding, which is the application of, uh, of knowledge to life situations, it has the idea of a mindset or disposition that results in right moral action, doing the right thing, a mindset to do the right thing. So in other words, the idea of this this word group is to have a mindset, to be mentally prepared and focused to handle any hardship, any suffering, any persecution that might come your way. So that what happens when you're walking down the street and this difficulty comes out from around the corner, you know how to handle it. And the question then is, how do we become mentally prepared to do that? And the first thing we do is we have to practice. How does, how does a SEAL team become proficient in what they do. They practice, practice, practice. They drill, drill, drill. How does a SWAT team for a, a police department, how do they excel in what they do? It's drilling and practice over and over and over again. How does an athlete become uh, excellent in what they do? It's practice, perfect practice. Remember, Bad practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. So you do it over and over again. That's why we confess sin. Uh, keep short accounts constantly. It reminds us that we're sinners. You know, some people say, oh, it's just so depressing to have to confess sin. I just have to, I, I just have to focus on myself all the time. I say, well, you don't understand the concept. The concept is based on grace orientation. It's not making you just get get embroiled in a lot of uh, of self-examination where you're just self-flagellating all the time. Jesus was the one who was flagellated, not you. Okay? It's so you remind yourself, I'm a sinner. I need God's grace. Christ paid for my sin. You admit your sin and you're instantly forgiven and cleanse. So we practice it and we have to accept 
God's forgiveness. There's so many people who think that somehow, some way they've done something, and how can God use me again? How can God still love me? It's because Christ died on the cross for those sins. And when you continue to feel guilty over some sin you committed, you're basically saying, Christ didn't do quite enough. I have to help. That somehow I'm going to impress God by my guilt, by my remorse, by my sorrow. Now, that doesn't mean that there's something necessarily wrong with remorse or sorrow. Sometimes when we sin and it's something that shocks us, we will feel sorry. We may have remorse. But you don't have to have remorse. Uh, because when you've committed some sin 25,632 times, when you did it when you were 20, you thought, how can God love me? Well, when you've done it 25,000 more times, it doesn't have quite the shock value that it did the first time you committed that sin. But that doesn't mean your confession is any less significant. You're still admitting that you did it, and God still forgives you and cleanses you of all unrighteousness. Second thing we need to do is to hide the word of God in our heart. We memorize the scripture. We learn it over and over again. I heard a story not long ago. I was talking with um, another pastor, and, and we were talking about uh, just memorizing uh, memorizing scripture. And one of the great preachers of a previous generation was uh, Harry Ironside, who was the pastor of the Moody Memorial Church in Chicago. And he went to be with the Lord in the late 40s. Uh, we were talking, uh, at the context of our conversation, we were talking about verse-by-verse preaching and how that's fallen by the wayside and so many people, just pastors, just teach topically now, which won't mature anybody at all. And uh, Ironside became blind in his last years. He continued to teach verse by verse. He had memorized books of the Bible. And he could stand up and preach verse by verse through a book of the Bible because he had memorized that whole book. He had hidden it in his heart. And so we need to challenge people not just to read like we do on our website, but to memorize Scripture because that's the foundation, those promises that we hide in our heart. That's the foundation for the faith rest drill. That's the foundation for grace orientation. And that's the foundation for doctrinal orientation is that we orient our thing. The more we wash our minds with the Word of God, the more we we focus and understand truth. Third thing that we do is we have to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have to mature. It's not just, somebody once said, it's not, for a lot of people come in and they have a resume and they've had, it looks like they've had 20 years in doing the same job. And so people will think they had 20 years of experience. Well, for a lot of people, all they've had is uh, one year of experience 20 times. And they never grow. And that's what we have to do as believers is to grow beyond those those basics. And so we have to do that. And that comes through application of the word in, in times of difficulty. And then fourth, we have to pay attention to how we think and what we think about. Back in October when I was on vacation, uh, John Williams Williamson gave a, an excellent talk about thinking 
and logic. And uh, he did a very good job with that. And if you haven't listened to it, you ought to listen to it. John's, um, John's just a newbie. He's a freshman, and he's just learning how to communicate, but he really understands his topic. And he did a great job with that, and um, I've listened to it, and I need to go back. He said some prof- made some profound arguments that you need to just listen to more than once or twice to really capture the significance of what he said. Fifth thing, <clears throat> along with um, thinking, we have to realize that the Christian life is a life of thinking. That's what all these other verses point out, not a life of emotion. And for most Christians today, it's all about emotion, how I feel about God. I need to go worship. I need to sing these these feel-good type choruses because that makes me feel like I'm worshiping. Well, feelings are not the criteria. Thinking is the criteria. You just go through the Scripture sometime and do word studies on words like thought and thinking and mind, and, and then there's not really a word for emotion. There's words for joy, but it's not an emotional joy. An emotional joy goes up and down. Uh, biblical joy is based on the immutability of God, and so it's stable. So we have to recognize that it's about thinking Scripture. And then we just have to drill, drill, practice, practice, and apply and apply. So a couple of verses that talk about thought, Romans 12.2 don't be conformed to this world. Now, that's not the best translation there. The word that is translated world isn't cosmos, which is often translated world. It's the word ionos, which has to do with time. It's the spirit of the age, what the Germans call the zeitgeist. And it's thinking in the spirit of the age, in our postmodern, relativistic, secular mindset. And what Paul says is don't be pressed into that way of thinking, but be transformed, be uh, completely overhauled by the renewing of your emotions. Wait a minute, it doesn't say that, does it? By the renewing of your mind, changing how you think. We need to think about our thinking. And I had one professor in seminary say it's hard enough to think, to think, but it's really hard to think about your thinking. And John did a good job helping us get a handle on how we think about thinking. And we do that, we transform our thinking so that we can prove through how we think that the will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect. The next verse, Paul goes on to say, For I say, through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. There's that arrogance problem again. But to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Soberly doesn't mean a lack of alcohol. It means to think objectively, to think with a clear head, to think in terms of truth and not in terms of of error, not in terms of fantasy. And then Philippians 4.8 a great verse to memorize. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, whatever has excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So when your mind wanders off to whatever it wanders off to, 
and you ask yourself, well, here's the criteria. Oops, I can't think about that. We, it teaches us to discipline our thought life so that we focus on the Word. So we arm ourselves with the same mind, and then we get into this interesting phrase, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, it starts off with the four here is, in the Greek, it's a hottie. Without getting into the weeds on the grammar, it can be translated because, but another major use of that that word is, is to what they what the grammarians call exegetical. And so what it is identifying is the content of the mind, the content of the resolution. Arm yourselves with a certain resolve in your thinking. What is that resolve? The resolve is that that the one who suffered in the flesh the resolve is that I'm not going to suffer in the flesh by handling it with sin. When I'm going through adversity, I'm not going to handle it with anger, with bitterness, with resentment. I'm not going to handle it by escaping into some uh, fantasy world. I'm going to handle it through the truth of God's word. And if I am uh, persecuted for that, Fine, I'm going to do it the right way. So I paraphrased it this way. This mentality is I'm expressing as someone who says, I'm done with solving life's problems with the solutions of the sin nature. I will do the right thing come what may. I will trust God and he will sustain me. That's that resolution. So the person, the, the, you arm yourselves with a certain resolve, a certain mindset, a mentality to face combat so that when you suffer, you're, you're going to cease from sin. You're going to cease from using the sin nature to handle the suffering or the adversity. And that's the point of this, uh, this verse, and that's how it should be handled and expressed uh, grammatically. It's that mental resolution that you're going to suffer in the flesh. You're going to face the adversity, face the hostility, face the persecution with joy, just as Jesus uh, endured the cross, Hebrews 12, 2, endured the cross for the joy set before him. You're going to have that same kind of mentality so that rather than taking the easy path, the sin nature path, the path of least resistance is the way out. You're going to do it the right way by applying doctrine no matter what will happen. Now that leads to the to the next thought in Peter, and that is, and it's really unfortunate that you have this, this verse break here because this verse extends what's been said in verse 1. Uh, verse 1 says, For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, has ceased from handling it through his sin nature in order that, see, there's a purpose for that determination, in order that he will no longer live the rest of his time, his rest of his time in the flesh, that is the rest of his time in his human body before he's taken to be with the Lord, he's going to quit living for the lusts of men. And the word there for men is anthropos, meaning mankind or humanity. He's going to quit living for the pleasure he gets from sin. 
And that may be pleasure from getting angry at somebody, pleasure from uh, thinking about revenge or getting back at somebody, uh, or make a determination that we're not going to live anymore by handling life situations according to the lust of the flesh, but we're going to handle those situations and live the rest of our time fulfilling the will of God. So the lusts of man come out of the sin nature. I need to brighten that up a little bit, I think. But uh, in the sin nature, we have the area of personal sins. That's the area of our weakness. We're just naturally attracted to certain sins. Some people more, you know, in some areas, other people in other areas. In an area of strength, we're trying to do good, impress God by whatever we're doing without depending on the word of the Holy Spirit. That's human good. You look at all kinds of people. The Pharisees manufactured human good. They were religious. They were moral, all of those things. You have certain cults uh, around that emphasize morality so much. They're very moral. They're hard workers. You get some Jehovah's Witnesses, some Mormons. They work hard. They're working their way to heaven. Uh, I've told the story before. When I was in seminary, I did house sitting for people and had one family said every time we have a we need a tradesman to come in a plumber electrician carpenter painter whatever we always hire jehovah's witnesses we never get christians jehovah's witnesses are working their way to heaven and they do a better job than any christians we've ever had that's a sad commentary on a lot of christians they they're working their way to heaven so that's human good it doesn't get them anywhere in, as far as god is concerned but then we have various lusts, and these lusts will either drive us towards uh, licentiousness and lasciviousness and antinomianism, which represents somebody who's just living for their own pleasure. But it also, those lusts, power lust, uh, that can drive people in religion to asceticism and legalism. The Pharisees were guilty of moral degeneracy. The, their lust patterns drove them to be very arrogant about their spirituality and what they had done. So most people just think of immorality as a product of lust, but you can also have morality as the product of lust. And that's what uh, Peter's talking about here is fulfilling those lust patterns. And to fulfill them, we have to understand what they are so that we can identify them and quit leaving, living in light of those lusts. So as we finish, wrap up with verse 2, I just want to summarize what we've seen so far. First of all, that the believer is to be mentally prepared for combat through spiritual combat, through dependence upon God, dependence on the Word, and to be fortified internally by the Word of God. So we have to have that mental determination. Second thing is, we have to reach a realization that we're just going to quit trying to handle it with our sin nature, living for the pleasure of our lusts and then confessing it later, and just living for God. We're just tired of always trying to do it ourselves in our own power and our sin nature. And then third... That's going to lead to the believer living a separated lifestyle. He will think different from those around him. He will therefore have different actions and different beliefs from the pagan 
world that surround us, and that will isolate the believer. When we in America lived in a predominantly Christian culture up through the 1960s, if you were trying to live a moral spiritual life, it didn't set you apart from the surrounding culture that much. But since the 60s, increasingly the culture uh, rejects any kind of biblical values or absolutes. And so when believers try to take a stand, they be, they get ridiculed. They uh, are called all manner of names. There's a lot of hostility uh, that is directed towards those who believe in biblical truth. And that is suffering. That's rejection. That is a persecution. Uh, and it's only going to get worse in this culture unless there is a phenomenal shift like in the time of the Reformation where there is a cultural shift turning back to the Word of God. So to face it as believers, we have to have that mental focus and determination to fight the spiritual battle God's way. We'll come back. In about three weeks after, or four weeks after I get back from Kiev and start up with verse 2. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be uh, come to an understanding of the mental discipline, the mental focus, the mental commitment that we need in order to grow and mature as believers, to fight the battle your way, fight the good fight the way you have taught us in your word and to focus on fulfilling your will in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.